please follow along with us. Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. First Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the same cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble 
as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. This is the word of the Lord. This is the third week in the season of Lent. One of the aspects of this season is a godly introspection, not an introspection that seeks to establish your righteousness by looking inward and seeing all of the wonderful things you've done. But on the same side, or on the flip side, if you will, it's not a season in which we become introspective to just become self-condemning. One of the reasons why I say that is because oftentimes, culturally, Lent is experienced as a season in which we must whip ourselves or beat ourselves up so as to atone for sin. One of the things that's helpful to understand as you're learning how to engage properly with the church calendar, as we've been doing in our church for the number for the last few years, is that no season takes away the cross or the resurrection. Many people fast in Lent, but it's always been the church's practice that you don't fast on the Sundays in Lent. Why? Because the Lord's Day is always a feast. And so although these words that we're about to encounter and interact with have dire uh, consequences if we disregard them, Paul, I think, is presenting this passage, this example, this account, in order for them to make a godly improvement on the warnings. Uh, Bad theology, whether it's intellectually held or whether it's just propositionally held in the heart, dismisses scriptural warnings and makes no godly improvement on the warnings. And one of the things you have to see, and we're going to spend some time at this in this uh, in this morning, is this: these warnings were given not to the world, but to the people in the church. Now, when I say the people in the church, I want you to hear plainly, I do not mean those true believers who are real sheep, who've been reborn and are new creations. Those are eternally secure. Those will persevere because God will cause them to persevere. But the New Testament doesn't tell you objectively whether you are one of those people or not. Those sorts of evidences are the product or the fruit of a life as well as an internal witness which is subjective from the Holy Spirit. And because that internal witness is subjective, it can be deceived to you by the enemy. The enemy can attempt to mask to you the voice of God's approval, and you can live for years and years under the false sense of security, saying, I really know Christ, I've really been washed, I really am new, and yet all the while you suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. God is seeking to convince you of your need to truly approach Christ, and yet you presume you're already okay, you're already safe. Now, one of the things that I understand as a pastoral concern in these passages is we do not want to disturb the weak brothers and sisters among us. If you are lacking understanding of Christ's disposed love to you, if you do not understand how much the Father wants to bring you to himself and wash you and adopt you and claim you as his own, then I I would encourage you, this word is something that you should take in the context of the rest of the gospel. But on the other hand, if your life is filled, absolutely filled and replete to the brim with evidence to the contrary, then I would listen severely to these words. One of the things that Paul is trying to say is that all of them, all of Israel, had a share in that rock, Christ. Just like that, we too today have a share in that rock. So before I give any more 
context. We're about to go to the backstory of why, why Moses was the one to bring them into the promised land. Uh, before we get there, I just want to give you an encouragement to listen with an open heart and an open mind that the Holy Spirit would be able to confirm to you the authenticity and, and that if you do not pass the test, that you would repent deeply because Christ is calling to you in these passages. So I want to look first at the context of Moses, who Moses was called to be, and Moses's identity with water over and over again in the text, and then finally his journey into the wilderness. This is something that's extremely important to understand because of what it speaks forth, not just about Moses and his ability to bring about water in the wilderness, but really what it says about Christ and his ability to bring water in the wilderness. God's testing of the people, and that testing taking place in more than two accounts. We're going to look at that pattern. If you've ever been at this church for more than two weeks, you've probably heard the phrase two or three witnesses. I believe it's a major scriptural key, uh, a major scriptural key in order to understand the covenant process of God, that God takes them through two or three testings and they fail each time. And that failure actually solidified what God was going to do with that generation. I want to look at this rock in the wilderness and how this rock is actually a literary foil of what's about to happen to Moses. We're going to see there in just a minute. Then I want to look at the nature of grumbling against God. What does grumbling against God actually look like in the context of a New Testament church or a New Testament believer? And I believe that in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul is actually pointing to something that he's actually too uh, humble to to bring out in full force. And in fact, if you look at that pattern of two or three witnesses, when he gets to 2 Corinthians being the third letter, I know that's tricky, there was another letter that he references that we don't have. Being the third letter, he is eager to cut to the core of the matter. He's no longer using words that are supposed to be interpreted. And to that end, we're going to look at the nature of what it means to judge the word. And if you hear me use the phrase, judge the word, you might think to yourself, well, it's not our place to judge the word. And yet we're going to see how it's impossible not to judge the word. We're gonna, I'm going to explain all that I mean there. That's a little provocative subtitle there. But I, I intend to hope to jar your approach to how you think about God's word when we get to that part of the message. So first, I want to look at the history of Israel. We're going to go through hundreds of years of context. I'm going to take you through them very briefly. Joseph had been sold by his brothers into Egypt, and Joseph had gone through many persecutions and ended up in prison, only to be raised out of that prison through the interpretation of dreams, which finally led to or culminated in the climax of interpreting a dream for Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt. And at that interpretation, Pharaoh recognizes the blessing of God on Joseph to cause Egypt to survive a famine that would have wiped them out completely. And so God raises up Joseph. Joseph calls to his brothers and father to come down to Egypt, and the people of God are persevered through the famine because of what God did in overcoming the evil of Joseph's brothers and bringing about Joseph to a place of righteous authority. After this, hundreds of years go by and various pharaohs arise and the memory of the blessing of God on the Yahweh-worshipping community of Joseph and his brothers eventually fades. It says there's a new king that arises, a new pharaoh comes to the throne who does not remember Joseph. He doesn't know Joseph and he begins to revert back to their pagan ways. The Egyptians were an extremely pagan society. They were filled with a devotion to many gods because they did not acknowledge the one true God, as Romans 1 tells us. So this Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, oppresses the people, and he not only oppresses them in a particular way, later on in the chapters of Exodus, we'll see that he commanded them to be servants making bricks without straw, 
But before that level of oppression, there was a prior oppression, and this is that oppression. Pharaoh recognized that the blessing of God, just as it was on Jacob when he served Laban, so also it is on the Hebrews who live in the land of Goshen, being shepherds. And they were multiplying and becoming strong, and Pharaoh's fear was that the people of Israel would overpower them and take over the country. And so Pharaoh unleashed a plan to take all of the strength away from the Hebrews, saying to the, the midwives that if there is a Hebrew boy, you are to throw him into the Nile. And so this imagery of the water is immediately important in the context of Exodus. Water for the people of the Hebrews at the time of this evil Pharaoh was actually judgment. It was persecution. They were having their sons stolen from them and thrown into the Nile. It seems to be the case, although it's not entirely clear, that most of the Hebrews went along with this scheme. And I'm not going to defend that proposition or assertion. I would encourage you to look at Exodus 1 and 2 and consider the narrative arc that there is one family, a particular Levite family, uh, Levi being the one who was going to be chosen to be a priesthood, a Levite, one of the sons of Levi, chooses to disobey. And the reason I say that this is probably an uncommon thing is because Hebrews tells us that they did this by faith, that they did this contrary to the natural circumstance, knowing that they might even, in fact, themselves face persecution. Moses, this little boy, is hidden by his mother, and he's placed in a basket that's covered with with pitch, with tar. This is very similar, if you will, in a sense, to the Ark of Noah. It is constructed out of wood or wicker or something that comes up out of the earth, and then it's covered with thick earth and placed upon the waters and sent based on the hope in God. Moses is, who's not yet named Moses, Moses is taken along with the river, and eventually Pharaoh's daughter picks Moses up out of this basket. And the reason she calls him Moses is, as Exodus tells us, for she drew him out of the water. You see, Moses is directly connected in the theme of Exodus to the water. Isn't this interesting how God writes his stories? What I think is so beautiful is that the entire time that Moses is alive, the very destruction of Pharaoh is living under his nose. Can you see the irony here? That God is going to bring great deliverance against this evil, wicked king who seeks to kill male children by allowing this one male child who has escaped to live in his own household, to eat from his own table to be raised in the education, wisdom, and expense of the king and his court. This is beautiful to me, and this is the way that God writes his stories, which are wonderfully, beautifully uh, intricate, both from a literary sense, but we do not claim that against the authenticity of history. That is to say, God is writing this beautiful story, which is captured in Exodus so masterfully, but it also is the way that he wrote that history. These are the actions of God in time. And so God causes Moses to be intimately connected to this water. So after Moses is grown, he goes and he sees some Hebrews who are being persecuted by this taskmaster, this this manager of the work. And in some way, Moses comes to understand that he is culturally a Hebrew because he sees this go on and he, he puts a stop to it. He instantly executes justice for the rest of his people. He ends the harsh oppression. This is all a foreshadowing of what's coming. Knowing that Pharaoh has heard of this, Moses then flees to the wilderness. He escapes out of Egypt and goes to the wilderness. As soon as Moses gets there, he immediately again delivers justice, this time not to the Hebrews, but to rather some Yahweh worshipers, the priest of Midian and his daughters. Moses comes and there are these wicked shepherds, which will later be picked up in Isaiah and Jesus himself. They'll use these themes again. Moses basically fights them, throws them away from this water well, and then immediately draws water out of the desert for both the priest of Midian's daughters and their flock. You see, Moses is living and going through the entire exodus that his people will eventually go through. 
because this is the way that God prepares a deliverer. They suffer and they create a context where the covenant of God can be fulfilled through them. God tests them and then uses them. And so Moses passes this test. And so throughout Moses' entire history, we see that God has been already acting to raise up a deliverer even before the people begin to cry out for deliverance. Exodus then, after all of these things take place, then Exodus tells us that the people begin to cry for deliverance. God anticipates the future, so to speak. He sees the end from the beginning, and he then begins to act in time to bring about his purpose. So before the Exodus takes place, Moses experiences every suffering and trial that the people will encounter themselves. He was in fear of Pharaoh coming to get him. He was in the wilderness without water. He had to defend the people of Yahweh against evil and wicked, uh, wicked shepherds, and he had to bring out water for the people and their flock. And so through Moses, God brings plague upon, plagues upon the Egyptians. He calls Moses back into the land. Moses goes, and then he rots or works plagues among the Egyptians. And each one of these plagues is severe against their economy, against their infrastructure, against their livestock. All of these plagues, everything that takes place, is at once a simultaneous slam from Yahweh against the various gods that they loved, gods that they had clung to, and also has massive implications for their infrastructure, their economy, their kingdom. Really, before the, the Hebrews are let go, Pharaoh kind of closes his grip, and he closes his grip, grip so strong that he ultimately loses his own household, his own succession. Through the final plague, God slays all the firstborn males of the Egyptians. Can you see how in the context of what Pharaoh was doing to the people of God, this evil that Pharaoh had sown had now come back upon his own head? Can you see that in the structure of the story? God brings this plague because he wants to judge sin and he wants to humble Pharaoh. He wants to say to the Egyptians and all the surrounding nations, I am Yahweh alone. There are no other gods before me. And that's exactly what he tells the people when they come out to the wilderness. Though Pharaoh's entire kingdom and economy at this point had been destroyed, he becomes drunk with rage. He becomes absolutely insane with evil. That is, his desire for the Hebrews to be kept in captivity is coming at a great cost. All of the Nile is destroyed. All of the crops have been destroyed. All of the towns are filled with frogs and gnats. Can you imagine this? Like, I get in trouble at my house if there are more than a few spiders in the house at any one time. Their river stank. They would not want to take a boat on the river. They would not take fish from the river. They would not want to bring the river in to irrigate their crops. Their crops had been burned with hail and fire from heaven. Their livestock had died. There was locust over everything. Every plant was, was ruined. In effect, you can kind of understand this as God's decreation, if you will. Everything that happens to Egypt is a destruction of the created order. Their whole world would be, would, was ended. And so it's in seeing that, you can understand the level of evil that Pharaoh sinks to. Because after everything is ruined, after all his hope is gone... After the final plague, he lets them go, and then a few hours later, seemingly from the text, says, I've changed my mind, let's go get them. And he takes his entire army, what's left of them, and he goes and pursues the Israelites to bring them back into bondage. And so at this very first sign of trouble, this is where we pick up that testing theme I talked about earlier. At the very first sign of trouble, the Israelites begin to grumble against Moses and to doubt God's provision. Remember, they had seen 10 plagues in which plague after plague, God had made a separation between the Egyptians and the Israelites, especially in that final plague, giving them the symbol of the Passover in which he was to mark the difference between the Egyptian households and the Hebrew households. And yet at this very first trial, where the, the armies of Pharaoh are chasing them, they begin to doubt God. They say to Moses, is it because Egypt didn't have any graves that you've brought us out here to die? The level of cynicism and unbelief 
that the people respond to God with in this first trial is breathtaking. It's stunning because they had just seen perhaps maybe over the course of a year, maybe sooner, maybe it was just a few days, they had just seen amazing plagues wrought against a country and that country was totally destroyed. They were the economic power of the world. They had been brought to nothing and they wonder whether Yahweh is doing this or not. After this exact trial, after God destroys the Egyptians, Moses then brings them into the promised land, and then they go through another trial. There is a period of three days of thirst in which they go through the wilderness, and yet they do not come to Moses in humility, but grumble against him. They find water at this place that Moses calls Mara, but it's too bitter to drink. And after the people grumble, instead of petition, instead of humbly request, they grumble against Moses and against God. God shows Moses to throw a log into the water to make those bitter waters sweet. God warns them at this very point saying, listen to his voice and obey my covenant. And yet they do not listen, they harden their hearts. Again, the people grumble against Moses just probably a day or two after this. They grumble now just not just against Moses, but also against Aaron and Moses. And now they grumble not for drink, but for food. See, first it's drink, now it's food. They grumble against Moses because they have no food. And they actually hearken to him in the exact same pattern. Oh, that we were back in Egypt where we had leeks and onions, where we had flesh pots or meat pots. Have you ever had food that's cooked in a crock pot? It's wonderful. I got this amazing deal one time at Kroger, a dollar for pork shoulder. Thank God we are in the new covenant. I love, I love pork shoulder. And to get pork shoulder for a dollar, that's about as good as free. And so I take this like four or five pound pork shoulder and put it in the crock pot and I come back tomorrow with no effort of my own and it's pulled pork. It's a magic trick. (laughs) The point is that this is the type of savory delight. Now all the symbols and shadows have been fulfilled, but the point is that the people of Israel wanted the fleshly pleasure of a meal rather than treating the representative of God correctly and thereby treating God as holy. You understand that? Their appetite destroyed them. In a very real sense, the people of Israel at this point are very immature. They're like a child or like a baby. And now I have a baby, so I'm not slamming babies here. I'm not trying to say babies are sinful. What I'm trying to say is that a baby says something about immaturity. Why does a baby cry extremely when he or she is hungry? Is because they have no other means to communicate right? Have you ever tried to take a toy away from a 10-month-old? I've tried it. It's not good <laughs> because their heart is set on that thing and they have no character. They, they are just a small human with no you know, understanding of propriety or decency or respect. They're just a young person. This is what Israel is like. Israel is a spiritual child at this point. Any need that, that comes to their situation or encounter, they respond with all-out rebellion, throwing tantrums, grumbling against God's anointed. In a sense, they are like a spiritual child. And Hosea even uses that same picture. When Israel was a child, oh, how I loved him. See, God is actually trying to bring them into maturity by showing them great things and teaching them great things, investing them with his law and ways, and yet they won't have it. So the people need food and water, and why at this point we need to ask, does God find fault? You have to eat. You have to drink. These are not things that are evil in and of themselves. So why does God find fault? The reason is they do not come and petition humbly, but rather they grumble and accuse. They respond to a need with unbelief instead of faith. Now there is, of course, a spiritual sense in which This has implication to us, but the point is that God was trying to give evidence to both his people and now through Paul's uh, teaching through to us that you must respond to God in faith. You must come to God and make a petition and not be an idolater. See, an idolater is wanting the meal now, even despite the fact that you know God is leading you through the wilderness. We've covered this a few times in our 
examination of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness, the point of his temptation in the wilderness is he was trusting that the Father would say when it's time to eat again. This is how Jesus is the fulfillment of this bad example with a righteous example. God does not require the Israelites to fast through a desert or to fast from drinking through a desert. That's insanity. You cannot do it. And yet he calls them, he expects them at this point through his dealings with them to trust him enough to know that God will bring it about when he needs to. They should have come asking in faith instead of grumbling. Jesus, in fact, even teaches this on the Sermon on the Mount that God knows that you need these things before you ask. So even after God gives them a drink at Mara and the food of manna and quail, that is a pattern of two witnesses, the people still continue to doubt God. And the very next time they are thirsty, they commit the same sin. They've not repented, they've not learned, and they have continued to grumble against God's anointed. Exodus 17, 3 and 4 They say to to Moses in the exact same pattern, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Can you see the irony in who Moses was even at the beginning of his calling? As soon as Moses gets into the wilderness, he knows how to bring about water for the people and the flocks. And even after these two witnesses given to Israel herself with both the water at Marah and the food, the manna and the quail, Those two witnesses were not enough to convince the people that they should petition in thanksgiving instead of grumble and complain and unbelief. Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And here we pick up this theme of the rock. See, Moses is in danger of being stoned, having rocks thrown at him. And God answers this dilemma saying that instead of rocks striking Moses, he will strike the rock. You see this foil here. God is saying something about the importance of rocks. He says, pass on before the people, take with you some of the elders, representatives, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. What did, what did Moses do with his staff in striking the Nile? He caused water to become blood. And so he takes this staff, which God reminds us of its purpose and its nature, what it had done prior to this. And then he says, go strike the rock and water will come forth. This rock, however, is no mere physical thing, but points to the mighty one of Israel. As the Psalm tells us, which we're about to see, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. And that word is not just Adonai, that, that word is Yahweh. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. You see, this understanding of Yahweh being the rock of Israel, it's not just a metaphor, it's the reality in the spirit that Yahweh himself is the foundation. What is a foundation made out of? Either really good natural earth or the crust of the earth, bedrock, or poured slabs, concrete, liquid rock that becomes really strong rock. Israel is founded upon the revelation of Yahweh being the deliverer. It's not just in this psalm, it's actually in the story itself. The people of Israel come to become a people by being ripped out of Egypt through God's deliverance, through God's salvation. Indeed, Jesus himself claims to be this rock. He says, I'm the stone which the builders have rejected, and now I've become the cornerstone. If you don't know much about building or masonry, the cornerstone is the first thing to be laid whenever you're building a structure or a building. The cornerstone has to be laid perfectly, and it also has to be a stone of choice quality. It cannot be a stone that might break or might move while you're adding stones to it. Because if that cornerstone moves even the slightest degree, even minutes or seconds in in math language, in geometry, then the rest of the structure is completely off square, it's off level, everything else will be ruined. That cornerstone is perfect. And so Jesus Christ calls himself the cornerstone. The stone which has been rejected has now become the cornerstone. God is building a new building, a new temple in the spirit on Christ himself. And so just as Moses was spared stoning 
instead struck the rock, so also Christ warns his very hearers at this point in the Gospels. He says, whoever this rock falls upon, he will be crushed. But whoever falls upon this rock, that is, who reverts back to or falls back to this rock, he will be broken, but in such a way as to be preserved. The metaphor is this, that Christ is a rock that is laid, and either you are built on Christ or you are not. This is exactly what Jesus is saying about the wise man versus the foolish man. Isn't it interesting how we take some of the seemingly most severe stories and we turn them into children's songs? I'm always, you know, the wise man built his head. Do you remember that song? If you went to Sunday school in America, you've heard that song. Okay, what happens to the foolish man who builds his house on not a foundation? The storms of life come against that house and great is its fall. Jesus is trying to warn people, saying, your, your house, your life is a house. Remember last week? Your, your, your life is a house. Your life is a house, and if it is not built upon Christ, it has no chance of surviving the inevitable storms, not just of life, but against the wrath of God that is coming against all people, if, unless they are found in Christ. So just like this, Jesus then speaks to the Samaritan just in the same way as Moses brings about water in the desert. Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman at a well. He encounters her, speaks to her, begins to probe the spiritual hiddenness of her adultery and brokenness of life, and says to this woman who's supposed to draw water for herself, he says to her, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask me for water. You see, Jesus is not just fulfilling the rock narrative or the rock imagery, he's also fulfilling the water imagery. He says, if the water that I give you, if you drink it, you will never thirst again. You see, you're not just a house. You're also a dry person in a wilderness. You need to drink. You need to drink from the author of life. And in fact, you need to drink from the spirit of God himself. Jesus says, In the very next imagery in John, to use the water theme, Jesus again offers himself up as water. Jesus does this at the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was given to Israel to remind them of the time in which they were in the wilderness. And so Jesus goes to the final day of that festival, and he says publicly to all those who were gathered, he says, if anyone is thirsty, Let him come and drink. Think about that for a second. He doesn't say, if anyone's a law keeper, if anyone is righteous before Yahweh, if anyone has tithed properly and understood the parsimony of the law and structures and and never committed iniquity and is currently able to go up to the throne of God or the house of the Lord. You see, the law contains many prohibitions of any particular person just presuming to go into God's temple. And yet when the true temple of God comes, which Ezekiel said about in in Ezekiel's prophecy of the temple, that the temple would, at the doors of the temple would pour forth a river and that river would fill the nations. Jesus Christ shows up in front, probably in front of the temple and says, if anyone's thirsty, there's a river here. I'm that river. Come and drink from me. And if you drink from me, you won't just be satisfied, but you will become filled with rivers of living water. And John interprets for us saying, this he spoke of the Spirit. You are a dry person in a wilderness. You not only need to drink of Christ, but upon drinking, you can become one who he uses to pour forth additional rivers into the earth. This is exactly what Christ is offering. He offers himself to everyone Therefore, seeing that we have come to both Christ to Christ himself, fulfilling all of this imagery, Paul then begins to use this imagery and he applies it to New Testament Christians who presumably have done what I've been talking about. We've come to Christ. We've eaten of Christ. We've drank from Christ. And he takes this imagery, which happened to Israel beforehand, and he applies it to the people of God. The warning in this psalm is also severe. It says that they have come to Christ himself. Look at the pronouns in this passage. He says, today, if you hear his voice, so this is someone addressing you and saying that you've heard a third party, God, his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah and on the day of Massa. Oh, sorry, I'm, I don't know why, but I didn't include this. Maybe in a minute, I'll get to it. The point is that he then goes on to say, and they grumbled against me. We can turn there if we would like. Psalm 95, <clears throat> it's, worth, it's worth pausing and doing that, interrupting the flow for just a minute. The point being that Jesus Christ himself is speaking. He says, for, uh, Psalm 90, uh, 95, verse 7, for he is our God, verse 8, do not harden your hearts when your fathers put me to the test. Have you ever seen this in the Psalms where there's someone addressing you and they refer to God and then they continue to address you and then they say me? Jesus Christ is speaking through the psalmist here. He says, today if you hear God's voice, his voice, do not harden your hearts when your fathers put me to the test. We have seen, therefore, and heard God's work in the gospel. The New Testament presents a picture over and over again of both Jesus and the apostles saying, we testify to what we've heard from the Father. That's in Jesus's case. In the apostles' case, they say, we testify what we have seen with our eyes, touched with our hands, heard with our ears concerning the word of life. They have experienced Christ himself. They have received wisdom from heaven. And that wisdom has come forth through the gospel to us as Christians. And it is to those Christians that Paul adds his voice. He says that God was presenting the gospel to the Israelites in the wilderness, and they rejected him. How do we know he was presenting the gospel to them in the wilderness? Is because of what Paul says. They, that is a relative pronoun earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, they all ate the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink. You see, if you just approach the Exodus and think, okay, God provided for them in these two or three examples with water and manna and quail and water again, that God was meeting physical needs. But Paul says that God was giving them spiritual food and spiritual drink. Through some way that is true in God's word and the way that it resonates together, the way that it harmonizes, God was providing for their spiritual needs just as significantly as their physical needs. God was providing for them the promise. The promise was that they could trust him. Paul interprets these events saying, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's so interesting to me how Paul understands God's heart and plan because the Exodus actually doesn't even say that the rock followed them. They just come to various events in their life where they meet up with the rock. And what Paul is saying is that just as the spirit proceeded in front of them as a cloud by day and a fire by night, so also their rear guard was attended to that this spiritual rock followed them through the wilderness, right? The promises of God, that God would go before you and that God would be your rear guard. Paul's saying that this happened and this was Jesus himself, that Jesus was attempting to protect and persevere that generation. Then he goes on to give a warning. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why were they overthrown? Because they grumbled and complained and doubted the promises of God for their generation. They doubted the promises of God so as to not believe them, nor to trust in them, and therefore they did not obey him. Though they drank from Christ, they did not drink so as to survive the wilderness, right? What does Jesus say? If you drink from me, you will never thirst again. And yet Paul says many of them fell away. They were overthrown in the desert, in the wilderness. The question at this point is, has Christ failed? And along with Paul, we would say, by no means. Christ did not fail in the wilderness, but rather this shows the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And the exceeding sinfulness of sin being its permanence and its obstinacy to the grace of God, God then uses and overcomes that evil to be an example for us. Think about Joseph again at the beginning of our story. Joseph was sold into bondage by his brothers, right? He goes down into Israel in bondage, speaking of their future bondage, foreshadowing it. And yet God overcomes that. He 
In fact, Joseph himself, when he's confronted by his brothers, he says, you intended evil, but God has intended good. That is, on the human level, they desired to sin, and God superimposed his righteous will, a greater causality to cause these things to take place. That's exactly what God is doing in the wilderness, where the people sin. God is overcoming their evil to be a righteous and gracious gift to you and to me, that it would be a warning to us. In no way did Christ fail, for though they had a share of the things of God, their hearts were far from him. And that is the exact same warning that Christ presents to the people in his generation. You honor me with your lips, quoting, I believe, Isaiah, but your hearts are far from me. You see, Christ is not a God that tolerates hypocrisy. I read a wonderful quote last night as I was interacting with a a gentleman by the name of A.W. Pink, long dead, uh, who I, I, my favorite people in the world are good dead theologians because they can't write anymore. So they can, you know, you can't be ashamed if you bring up their name and then they write something weird a few years later. Read dead people. A.W. Pink says that the New Testament should not be understood as a God who, was, who has laxed to any degree his righteous requirement or his holy justice. The point is this, that Christ offers free mercy and yet even those who have some share of Christ, as the book of Hebrews chapter 6 warns us, just because you taste of the heavenly gift does not mean that you've tasted profitably. Just because you've attended church does not mean you are a Christian. If you were alive in the 70s, perhaps you've heard of a a gentleman named Keith Green. Keith Green was a worship leader back then and part of the new worship movement that's come after that. He was very influential. One of his favorite quotes at least my favorite quote of his was, going to church doesn't make you a Christian just as much as going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, right? Think about that. Going to the institution that's known for the thing does not mean the reality has come home for you. Just because you attend a church does not mean that you have any reality with God. It doesn't mean that you are not a a hypocrite. The point is this, that Paul warns them to not behave like them. Though they failed to enter his rest, God uses them for our benefit. Paul says clearly, now these things took place as examples for us that we would not desire evil as they did. The point that Paul is saying is that God has overcome their evil example and he has now used that story as an example for you and for me that we would not grumble against God's leaders nor would we doubt God's provision and so as to sin against him and be idolaters, putting our needs, our appetites before his timing and will. This is the nature of idolatry. Paul then goes on to say in the very next verse, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What does it mean to sit down to eat and drink and rose up to play? It means to be extremely lax or spiritually lazy at the things concerning righteousness and be totally indulging every form of entertainment or food or appetite, even if they be legitimate. There is an evil use of legitimate things which culminates in idolatry, which is idolatry. And this is exactly what the people did. Food and drink are necessities for your life. And yet if you put them before God, it is idolatry. Likewise, he goes on to say, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Can you imagine the idea of 23,000 falling in a single day in a company of a, a group of people that were moving through the desert? They would have had to leave very far, very fast. After one day's journey, they could probably still smell the 23,000 corpses left behind. They probably could not have buried them all. That is how severe this sort of judgment was because that's what sexual immorality breeds. It is the natural outworking of of sin to cause death, and that death is sometimes, in this example, quickly judged by God. That sin and that death manifested itself in one day. It wasn't as today where we have various sins that we know about in the culture that sometimes even infect the people of God, that where the sin kind of follows far after, this was immediate judgment 
Why? So that they would understand quickly without any chance to miss the lesson that sin brings death. This is exactly what God is trying to teach them. Having eaten and drank from Christ, therefore we must not continue to be like them, desiring these meat pots and these broken cisterns. Jeremiah talks about the indictment against God's people, saying that they keep hewing out for themselves. They keep digging wells or cisterns that are broken, that have no water, and yet they don't come to drink from me. This is exactly what Paul teaches us. He teaches us that persistence in idolatry and sexual immorality will cause us to be destroyed in the wilderness. And the reason I can say that is because people who continue to engage in those things are providing evidence that they have no reality with Christ. What does 1 John 3 says? It says, No one who is born of God is able to sin because God's seed abides in him. Therefore, he cannot sin because he is born of God. The point is that if you've received that seed or word of God into your life, it has changed you such that all these sins and these evil things that you've done before God are put to an end because you are becoming a new creation right? The the idea is that the interaction with Christ should produce something in you that changes you radically to the core. Now, does this mean that you're perfect, that you never mess up, that you never sin again? No, it means to persist in sin so as to provide no evidence that there was any change before God spoke, that God's seed will bring forth fruit after its own kind. Likewise, we must see Paul's warnings in the larger context of his letter to the Corinthians. Over and over again, Paul is defending himself to the Corinthian church. Paul actually founded that church. In the book of Acts, we see that Paul shows up and there's no one to preach to. He shows up at Corinth, establishes the church. A few people get baptized. Most of them are baptized by other people not Paul himself. And then he writes a letter some years after this, and he has to, in both letters, defend his ministry strongly because they were grumbling and complaining against Paul. Indeed, in his final letter, Paul argues so strongly, and he does this to defend his authority because the church is being ravaged by false shepherds, false teachers, super apostles, if you will. The point is that those who are rejecting the authority of Paul are grumbling just as the Israelites had done before. This is what Paul is actually saying, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the chapter that comes immediately before this. It's in that context that Paul says, don't grumble like the Israelites did against Moses. He goes on to say in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul then repeats his warning that we must learn from them. Now these things happen to them as an example. See how he repeats himself? He repeats himself to put to push the point to its full force. He says, these things happened as an example. He then enumerates the examples. These things happened as an example for us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is one of the most helpful verses in all of the New Testament. Because what it says is that in that moment that you feel proud or pride, that you feel confident, like, I've finally arrived. Christ has really been formed in me. I'm really mature. If anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. The point is that he's trying to communicate, you must be on your spiritual guard at all times. Because these sorts of sins, grumbling, idolatries, they don't necessarily come full force on the day that you begin to enter into them. Sometimes they take time. Grumbling, especially against leaders, bitterness and unforgiveness, those are sins that are sown and often those seeds lie dormant for years. They finally culminate in full-fledged rebellion against God's authority. Paul knows for certain that those who entertain pride in their hearts and grumble against God and his anointed are close to falling. After making his final appeal to them in this section, Paul then commands them saying, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I have to say. 
Paul trusts that the Spirit will necessarily lead them to understand and apply his words. Look at the confidence that Paul has that there is some operation of the Spirit at work in the Corinthian church. And in fact, not only does Paul believe that they will come to the right judgment, it's actually the case that this is always what goes on to every word from God that you hear. Every word that you hear, you become accountable to. That is the way that God operates. That is the way that God has designed his word. His word goes forth from his mouth. It does not return to him unless it accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. And that is either one for you to be profited by it or for you to be hardened and condemned by it. God's word comes as a sword and will absolutely cut one way or another. Jesus said in the gospels, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Think about that for a second. Think about all the imagery that we've associated with Jesus today. You know, the, the Jesus videos where he's, you know, in this really flowery robe and soft, smooth hair and kind of spaced out a little bit and goes around with soft words. No, Jesus Christ really came to bring a sword. And in fact, when we get to Revelation, John sees Jesus as one with a sword coming out of his mouth, which is to cut the nations. He's the one in Psalm 2 who has a rod of iron to rule the nations. The point is this, that God's word always proceeds like a sword, and there are only two options. The first is, if you humble yourself, that sword will cut unto healing. That is like a master physician uses a scalpel to remove the the problem or the the dilemma, the, the, the illness or the infection, the gangrene, if you will, They use the scalpel to cut away things that cannot remain. That is what the sword of God's word does. On the other hand, if you harden your heart, you ought to take care that you are not pruned from the vine. Jesus says any branch that doesn't produce fruit, he's not just talking about evangelism, but I think it applies there. Any branch which doesn't show forth fruit of God's word is pruned. I have this tree in my front yard that is kind of a bad tree to have near a street because it's known for falling over in a bad storm. And I asked someone one day what to do about it. I said, you know, can I fortify it? Can I put some fertilizer around? Can I make it better? Can I prune it so that it won't be more likely to, to, you know, fall over? And the guy said, yeah, you can do that, but you need to prune it at the ground. (laughs) What's the point? The point is that that tree is of sort of a quality that you can't do much about it. It's in its nature. Jesus is saying, take care that you are not a branch that does not produce fruit. In in fact, Paul's very words command us to judge his words righteously, and it's tied to the table. In the immediate context after our reading today, Paul goes on to say that our eating of the supper is a participation in the death of Christ. Therefore, we must not attempt to partake of Christ and demons. This is the warning he gives. You cannot partake of Christ and demons. If you attempt to do so, you have no real communion with Christ, even though you might eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul is giving a warning. And in fact, he goes on to say, this is why some of you have fallen, become sick, and indeed why some of you have died. What he says at this point should give us great pause. There were people before Paul wrote his letter that had already died for presuming to touch Christ in the supper, and yet they already had been in fellowship and harmony with demons. You cannot partake of the table of Christ and demons. So, therefore, as you come, if you come to this table, which you are welcome and invited by Christ to do so, if you come to this table and you bear grudges before you come, renounce them. If you bear grudges and grumble against God's servants, you will fall in the wilderness like the people of Israel did. If you have a memory of sin, a type and a special circumstance of bearing a grudge, forgive that sin, release it, let it go. If you come to the table and you are in love with idols, destroy them. One of the perplexities that I have with the scriptures is over and over again, the people of God are told when God approaches that they should put away their idols. Now, I don't know Hebrew well enough, but I always think to myself, are they putting them in a drawer and they can get them back at any time? Brothers and sisters, do not do that with your idolatry. Do not put away your secret sins just for a few hours. Destroy them. 
completely, grind them into powder, pour them out in, in an unrighteous place. Remember last week in Leviticus, how the, the house that's filled with leprosy, you have to take the stones out, smash the plaster up, grind it into powder, and to pour it out in an unclean place. That is what God wants you to do with your idolatry. Only then can you and I have a true share in the fellowship of Christ, both his sufferings, and if we have a fellowship of his death and sufferings, then we surely have hope that we will be raised in a new life like his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we are so in need of your great grace. Your word is mighty and powerful. It is a sword and a hammer. Lord, we pray that you would break up the rocks of our heart, that if there be walls in our heart against you and against your knowledge, that you would smash them by your spirit, that you would apply your word to our life, that we would not be those who hear your word and disregard it, that we would not be like the Israelites who fell in the wilderness, but that you would lead us into the true promised land, that we would really have a true participation of Christ, that there would be no one in this church who is found to be a hypocrite on the last day. We pray, God, that you would give us an authenticity of witness, not just of witness, but of life, that we would walk in the light, that we would walk as new creations, that we would be true children of our Father. We pray, God, that you would do what only you can do. Apply this word. Give us grace. Allow us to partake of you in the table. Amen.